Living the Principles. This podcast is hosted by Latricia Smith and Phyllis G. Williams. Living the Principles seeks to expand mindsets, express beliefs, and edify excellence in hopes of building a stronger Black community. Welcome to Living the Principles. Welcome. I am Latricia, and with me today is my co-host, Phyllis. Hey, Phyllis. Hello, everyone. Hello, Difference Makers. Today, we have an honored guest who represents unity, which is referred to as Umoja, creativity as well. Substantial is the self-proclaimed Black of all trades. He's a visual artist, hip-hop artist, educator, music consultant, and community servant. His soulful and introspective brand of hip-hop music has received critical acclaims from magazines such as The Source and Ebony. His music videos have appeared on MTV, VH1, and BET. He has licensed major music to major brands such as Ford Motor Company, Amazon, and Uber. Difference Makers, we present to you Substantial. Peace, everybody. Peace. Welcome, Substantial. Thanks for having me. It is our honor and pleasure to have you. And although Phyllis just told us a little bit about you, I would like for you to tell us a little bit about you. And one of the things that I'd like to know about you particularly is Mm -hmm. how did you get the name Substantial? And what does that mean? Sure. So um, the story goes, uh, I think it was like maybe 98. I've had the name for a while. Uh, so back in 98, a uh, guy was um, a good friend of mine uh, who we all called Beef, basically booked me for a show that was happening at Pratt Institute uh, where I attended college. Although I agreed to do the show, something came up where I had to cancel. And so um, we still connected. He gave me the flyer. And when I got the flyer, I noticed that it didn't have my stage name at the time on there. And so I asked him about that. I was like, you know, I know I canceled, but at the time we talked, the flyer was already done. Where's my name? And he was like, no, that's you right there. Substantial. And I was like, that's definitely (laughs) not my stage name. So what's up? And uh, he basically told me that my old rap name was trash. And he said that he felt that the word substantial better described the type of music I made. And on top of that, it had my real name, Stan, in the middle. I tried it out for a little while as like an AKA, and people gravitated to that. Um, and it's basically, he was right. I mean, and so substantial to me, like whenever we use that word, we're using it in a way that usually means real, actual, true, of or having substance. It's basically like anytime you use that word substantial, you know that we're not referring to something that's kind of watered down. We're not mm-hmm. of referring to something that's, a uh, week or it's not like a real amount that isn't even worth our time. You know what I mean? And so mm-hmm. I just feel like it's a, a powerful label to put on whatever it is I'm presenting because um, it kind of speaks for itself before you even, I guess, get all the details. It sets a certain precedence or expectation, you know? I totally agree because when I first saw your name, that's exactly what I thought. I had these high expectations because mm-hmm. substantial is huge. It's something that's big, so I love the name. So tell us a little bit about Stan. Sure. So Stan is uh, a brother who was born and raised in um, Prince George's County, Maryland. 
you know, I'm a proud product of, of PG. Graduated from Suitland High School, which was a visual performing arts school in the county, which opened my eyes to the art world. A lot of times when you're young, you just know, like for me, I just knew graffiti. I knew uh, comic books. I knew cartoons, right? But that high school kind of opened my eyes to graphic design and so many other things, uh, so many other fields, architecture and um, industrial design. Just It just kind of, you know, broadened the playing field, so to speak. And so um, and from there, I went on to the Pratt Institute. I decided to go to school in New York because I knew while I was there, I wanted to pursue my music as well, not just my art. So I uh, made sure I positioned myself in a place that would uh, provide opportunities and challenges, uh, see if I was cut out to, to make it in either field. And so while living in New York, that's where I got my, my opportunity to work, that, uh, work with Hideout Productions which was actually a label in Japan, but I was discovered by that label because of a friend of mine at the college who was a student at Pratt and Brooklyn, but he was from Japan. Um, and happened to work at the record store that that record label owned. So he recommended me to them. And that's how I got my start in the music industry, you know, in terms of putting out records professionally. In your music, you use a lot of instruments. Do you have a background in that specifically, or did you gravitate towards that once you started rapping? <laughs> the only background I really have in being um, classically trained in music was my mother uh, had put me in, had me taking keyboard lessons um, when I was still in elementary school. And I was maybe, I think I was maybe like two or three weeks into the class before my mom pulled me out uh, because she couldn't afford it. But it, it created an interest, you know, like where I, I definitely wanted to I didn't want to stop taking the classes. I wanted to continue taking them, but, you know, I understood my mom's situation. Hip hop is very much the something out of nothing genre where it's like whether we had the tools to properly make music the way people thought it should be made or not, we were going to find a way to make music. And so and that's ultimately what happened to me. I was always messing around with like vocal percussion or beatboxing and got really good at that. And so when I finally saved up, got my grades up, so my mom would help me buy some equipment or whatever and go half with some of the equipment with me. She allowed me to purchase this equipment that um, kind of helped me further develop my skill. As I started to make a name for myself as a rapper, like even before I got my first contract, I basically was constantly connecting with people who play live instruments. You know, like I live in the DMV. And mm -hmm. so like you, you kind of in the DMV, like you're so, like live instrumentation is a major part of the culture here because of go-go music. So like there was no shortage of friends of mine who play instruments, even though I didn't. Yeah. And so that was just something that was always around. And I'm a huge jazz fan as well. So and I was always sampling jazz. Um, but then I realized my homies were good enough to play some of the type of stuff that I was sampling. Um, and so I just started to reach out uh, to them and started mixing both, like having the samples, but adding live instrumentation to it. And then other times just doing tracks that were full, like, you know, no samples at all, just mm -hmm. where the homies doing their thing. And uh, with me um, adding on uh, both vocally and production wise. So, Did your album, The Garden, have any samples? Yeah, it's a mixture of samples and live instrumentation. There's a lot of live instrumentation on it. But at the core of majority of the beats on there, there is um, some samples, but it's not like um, what they call phrase sampling, where it's like a sample, um, like one large portion. Well, not a large portion, but let's say I take like, you know, a, a five second or eight second sample, um, just loop that up and not really add to it. This would be situations where, let's say I take a um, 
I'll take some piano from one place, right? And then maybe um, play a bass line of my own, right? Mm. I'll program some drums of my own, but then I'll take some live drums or some sample drums and I'll chop them in a certain way to mix them, you know, mix them together to add more textures to it. And then on top of all of that, maybe I'll, I'll then call up one or two of my friends and have them play additional instruments on it. So, you know, so most of the stuff I do, even if you took away one or two of the samples that's used in it, um, and sometimes it's more than that. Sometimes it's four or five samples. It's never like sampling from one source, right? Like mm-hmm. I'm pulling from a lot of different places and then mixing them together and making it sound like it was supposed to be that way all like that's just the way it was always supposed to be to make something like an all new sound. Oh, wow. That's very creative. That's what I thought about your album, The Garden, but I didn't know it was all. Yeah, thank you. We just talked about the instruments. I want to talk a little bit about the lyrics. I sure. listened to a couple of your albums, and my favorite thus far, I haven't listened to all of the songs on all of the albums, but mm-hmm. my favorite thus far is Art is Where the Home Is. But I mm-hmm. noticed in that album, I didn't hear any B word, any N word. Yeah. And I listened to some earlier stuff. I think it was your first one to this union. A son was born. And I did hear some N-word in that one. So I'm wondering, (laughs) did you stop using the N-word? Or tell us a little bit about that. That is a great observation and question. So thank you for that. Because I usually don't get to explain why that transition happens in interviews. So anyway, uh, what happened was, um, so with my first album, I was with a Japanese record label. And they had me type up all of my lyrics so they could offer the lyrics in the actual um, CD cover. And when um, I submitted the lyrics to them, they spell checked the lyrics. And so it took every time that I said um, the N word where I said N-I-G-G-A pronouncing it that way. It literally auto corrected it. So it all said N-I-G-G-E-R. And then when you think about how many times I say it on my first album and how it was literally, you know, like. I mean, I, I can't even tell you how many times people had to like read that through the lyrics, but it wasn't just for the album. Like I put out like five singles from that album. So every mm-hmm. single it was listed on. And the major part that that really that really messed with me um, and I really uh, like I, I had to process and think about um, some changes I wanted to make was uh, the fact that a good amount of the people who were exposed to my first record weren't it wasn't my people. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't it wasn't black people. Right. Like it like it was a Japanese label. So it's mostly um, Japanese people who were seeing these lyrics. I'm singing along with these lyrics and stuff. at the time. And then later on, my stuff started to, you know, get more buzz in places like Europe and other places. And then eventually the states caught kind of caught on um, and the audience started to look a little more like me. But it's still mostly diverse. And so, you know, I felt a certain responsibility mm-hmm. like. Um, I never forget those first few shows where like I was doing some shows stateside and people who had bought the the record, they'd ask me about that. I'm like, what's up with the, you know, like the the spelling of the word? And and it's funny, like that I think is the smaller problem, right? Like what's up with the word in general? And mm-hmm. so I'm not gonna pretend like I don't say it and don't struggle with it. I you know, I was raised in a household with my mom. Um, and I don't know if I can say it on the show, so I'll try to keep uh, edit myself. But my mom, when I would leave the house, would say, don't have all them N-words in my car. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. don't, don't have them. Like, so the, <laughs> the environment I was raised in, like, regardless of what the community was saying, because keep in mind, the community I lived in 
people weren't making a big fuss about the word unless I was mm-hmm. at school. Right. So so it took me a very long time to kind of get control out of like how loose I was with that word um, just because of my upbringing. You know, I didn't grow up in a household that was what I guess what people would consider like socially conscious or woke. My family was very much, you know, they cared about certain issues and stuff like that. But for the most part, you know, we just trying to get get by day to day, trying to make sure uh, my nieces and nephews are, are safe and and I'm safe and all of that. So my mom ain't really. She wasn't talking politics and all of that and or, or like social responsibility. So that's something I had to learn kind of on my own. And I took uh, very seriously after um, especially that experience with the, that word. So I decided to take it out of most of the music I made. And now if you hear me in a modern song or whatever, say the N word it's because literally for that particular line, like that's mm-hmm. the word that's most relevant. Like it, that's the word that needs to be used because of what I'm talking about. Like I have a song mm-hmm. black where I say just that I'm like, um, they're in the comment section, like who these think they are, because mm-hmm. I'm referring to people who always, um, you know, are triggered by the presence of successful blacks or, or mm. blacks who are making, making a name for themselves. And so then they, they challenge by like trying to throw the N word out real loose. And basically saying things like who we think we are to be trying to be greater than they perceive mm-hmm. us to be. And so, um, so yeah, I mean, and then it's a similar, it's not a similar story for the B word, but it's not a word, unlike the N word, it's not, it's not a word that I threw around a lot, like at people around me all the time. The sad part is I probably have said that word more to men than I have, <laughs> like women. You know what I mean? It's an easy way to kind of, uh, you know, trigger your male counterpart when they, um, when you're challenging, like how tough they are or something. But, um, well, I grew up in a house with, I was raised mostly by my mom. Uh, my dad passed when I was 10. I got five sisters. So yeah, there was no way I was throwing that word around without catching everybody's hands. (laughs) 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 And I just kind of carried on like outside. And so, you know, we might, you know, everybody who's a Chappelle fan might joke around and say it to punctuate a sentence. But mm-hmm. outside of that, you know, I, I definitely didn't want to put it all through my music. I was reading something recently, and I'm not a big fan of modern day hip hop, so I can't remember who the hip hop artist was. But mm-hmm. they were having a concert, and I guess they called a white lady up to the stage. She was rapping the lyrics and she said the N-word and people, I guess, in the audience were offended. And I guess he had to tell her, no, you can't use that word. And that's what's so crazy. So when you were talking about your music being in Japan and they're hearing the lyrics, of course, they're just singing along to the song. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I'm sure there are some people who are just. You know, they 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 take that word so seriously that like um, because they're not black, maybe when they aren't even when they're not in the presence of black people, maybe they don't say it. Right. Like mm-hmm. even when they're listening to the song, I, I know some people personally who I think they're probably that consistent. Right. Like they won't say it in my presence, but I I don't feel like even if they were on their own rapping in the car, like they're sitting around like saying saying it and then giggling a little after. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I don't think that's in their character, but, mm-hmm. but I know for a fact, like I've been, you know, I've been around the world, like doing this and, uh, you know, I've shaken hands with somebody who's like, man, big fan of your stuff, man. Yo, you're, you're really good. You know? And then that same white person will go then dap up a DJ I work with my good friend, uh, Marcus D. 
um, who happens to be white. I've literally been in a situation where that same person who just dapped me up didn't use it with me. Then this white person goes and daps up my DJ who happened to be white. And then it was like, yo, man, you're dope, man. You're my nigga. Um, you know, like, pardon me, I don't know if I can say it on the show, but they, they've literally done that. So, uh-huh. and that, and that was interesting to me because it's like, you were hesitant. Like you, like you didn't think twice, like in terms of like knowing whether or not it was acceptable to say it to me. Uh-huh. Right. But then you think it's cool to like, you know, cause you talk to another white guy, you just throw it around. And luckily because of the type of character that my friend has, he went in, like went in on him. And, it, you know, it was awesome to see. It's good to have allies, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, um, allies are good. Yeah, but I just, I, I intentionally make my music the way I do because I'm aware of the fact that a good amount of people who are not from my background are the people who consume it. I know that there are a good amount of people who listen to my music, who share different political views, mm-hmm. um, are not as passionate about certain subjects have literally uh, tried to challenge me on things that were absolutely ridiculous. And I've had to like tell them flat out, like, I don't need your money. Just because you, you purchase a CD or stream some music doesn't mean you have any say on how I, like on my political views, how I maneuver through uh, my day to day or any of that. So, you know, you can, there's enough music out here for you to like somebody else. So you and your mm-hmm. film. Oh. <laughs> so um but it's just it's interesting man so you know i just try to be very cognizant of of those type of things um and you've talked about community quite a bit not only community but unity i liked how it shows the importance of having a community because that's who helped you with your stage name Mm -hmm. as far as community now why do you think um unity is important for communities yeah i can't think of a situation where someone has seen true success and they did it without getting the help of people who cared about their well-being or their success, right? Like we all pour into each other, trying to build each other up to help get through anything from loss to trying to get job opportunities. Like you can't get a job without a reference, right? Like you can't get, you know what I mean? Like, so no matter how you slice it, you're going to need someone. Right. Mm-hmm. And so us, you know, I just did an interview with a, another site. And one of the things I said, like, like, I just feel like I'm the type of person. I just want to see people do well in general. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, and I don't want to pretend like it's this old holier than thou thing. Like, I'm just like this person who's just a lot better than other people. What it really is, mm-hmm. it's kind of selfish for me. You know, like I know that in a society where people aren't struggling financially aren't uh like when they don't have those obstacles right they Mm -hmm. tend to thrive a bit more right so that's true if i don't have to struggle financially i I don't have to result to doing things that are going to potentially hurt that's true people so it's Mm -hmm. a selfish thing for me right like i want Mm -hmm. you know i want us to come together to lift each other up so i don't have to worry about those things you know i got a song where i say it was like yo where uh where my daughter could play without worry about rape or being hit by a straight. You know what I mean? Like those are real concerns for me. You That's know? true. So my wanting us to come together and lift each other up and build each other is extremely selfish. It's extremely mm-hmm. selfish. I like I'll be the first to say it. <laughs> because I don't want I don't want anybody I love that to walk out this door and worry about someone mm-hmm. trying to come for them and take what they have because they don't have enough. When mm-hmm. that same person could have came to me and asked me how to how to better themselves or how to 
lift themselves up or how did, how did I accomplish this? And I will willingly give them that information. You know, I may not mm-hmm. always have the time to do it for everybody, but you'd be mm-hmm. hard pressed to find someone who's came to me via email or in person and ask me about uh, different moves they could make in this industry or, or the art world or whatever, mm-hmm. where my initial thing is, nah, man, I ain't got time for that. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, I'm always, you know, I mean, there are moments where I tell people like, hey, I do have a company that does this. Uh, yeah <laughs> so, and mm-hmm. i can get this invoice because i know me i'm gonna spill the beans i'm gonna tell them everything so i mm-hmm. gotta i sometimes gotta backtrack and remember that oh i do this as a business as well so i gotta i gotta look out for my business because that's looking out for my family right yeah but, um, that's true but yeah I, unity is extremely important um to me it's like you know i, I want to see our community more unified to to accomplish certain goals to to um to strengthen uh, you know, like strengthen ourselves politically so that we can get the resources that our, our, our communities need, um, but uh, like build our schools up, all of these different things, you know, sound like mm-hmm. I'm like, you know, going for Miss Universe or something. But, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but ultimately, again, it's I love to lie to folks and tell you that, yeah, it's about like everybody, you know, and this, that and the third. But really, it's about like my first responsibility is taking care of home. And mm-hmm. I know my home and my family are safer in a community where people are coming together and working together to achieve common goals and, and lifting each other up. And so that's why I think we need to unify because I think everybody wants that. But the only way we get that is to sometimes have uncomfortable conversations, mm-hmm. um, sometimes have to work with people who you don't always get along with or share the same views, on, but, but find some type of common ground. Because I think there are certain core issues that we all care about and um, yes. all can benefit from. And I think that's something that everybody needs to work on, especially our people, because, um, you know, we're definitely in a day and age where we're quick to, to cancel folks. We like, mm-hmm. man, judge. We judge so fast without mm-hmm. having all the information. And, and more importantly, we do that forgetting our own um, sin, our own participation in, in these problems, right, that we help create. So, you know, I think everybody need, uh, needs to humble themselves a bit and understand that, like, you know, when we all, when we individually do better, we all can mm-hmm. do better. We can come together and make some real change happen. So, you know, I know it sounds super cliche, but. No, it's not, because I never thought about it from that perspective myself. I myself um, have one more question, and you touched on it. You spoke of your first priority is your family. That's one thing I really admire about what I've seen is your love for your family and you also discussed that in a lot of your lyrics and your latest EP. It was called "In My Daughter's Eyes." Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, yeah, recompositions had a song in my daughter's eyes. Yep. So, what would you tell a young man? What do you think a father should know or a husband should know mm-hmm. in regards to being respected in their daughter's eyes? What would that take? Yeah, I think uh, the first part is lose this idea that you somehow got to raise your daughter differently than you would your son. You know, I think there are some major differences, absolutely. But for the most part, you know, your daughter is capable of accomplishing virtually anything your son Mm. is capable of doing. You know, it's something that you really become conscious of if you are blessed enough to have to spend a lot of time with, with women, right? Like, um, Mm -hmm. I I got, like I said, I got five sisters. Um, You know, I've been doing youth work for a very long time. 
And, you know, and there's a lot of other people, kids out here who be calling me pop. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And, um, you know, I got some students. Uh, my last name is Robinson. So I got some students who call me Papa Rob. And, you know, and it's largely because, like, I was the closest thing to a father figure for them. Mm. Like, what I got to constantly remember when I'm dealing with them is, like, these notions that because she's a young woman, she can't do these things. I feel like my number one job outside of providing is to make sure I'm not crippling her uh, mm. by putting notions in her head that like she is somehow less capable of doing certain things because she is a female. And, you know, and that sometimes goes against like people's religious beliefs as well. Right. Mm. What roles are um, in the household. One of the issues that was major for me. Right. And this is going to sound silly. Maybe not depending on what your family life was like. But when I was 10 years old after my father passed, uh, when I came home for school and sat down for dinner, I sat in the same chair I would always sit in. And my mom made me get up to sit in my father's chair. And I didn't want to because I was like, that's dad's chair. She was like, your father coming home? And then I got quiet and sad, of course, because he just he literally just passed. Mm. And, uh, and so she had told me, she was like, you're the man of the house now. So that's your chair. Mm. And so I was raised with that. So mm-hmm. when I had my own house, when we had our first table that was big enough to know that, okay, that's the head of the table right there. When I finally uh, got to that point, when my wife would sometimes sit in that chair, like my ego would get bruised, right? Mm. Like That's my chair, right? And it's like, I'm still living with what, what I was raised with, what my mom taught me, what a woman taught me technically, not my father, right? And so, yeah, like we used to have like real debates and little arguments over this, right? I'm like, but that's mm-hmm. not <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> but it took a while for me to kind of get over that. I mean, I still mostly sit in that chair, but it's not because um, I bullied my wife into letting me sit there. It's my wife had enough respect for like the what was taught to me to understand mm-hmm. that it wasn't an attack on her. It was more like, I just was raised that way. It's not something I can kind of change my feelings about overnight. But I eventually grew past that. And so like one of the things we just we just started doing recently, like my daughters, they actually sit in the seats that are, are the heads of the table. Oh, and my wow. wife directly across from each other. And part of it's so, so my daughter can't watch TV when she is. <laughs> <laughs> But but it's also like it's me kind of letting go of these like stereotypical things, um, mm-hmm. feeding into like these ideas of what masculinity is supposed to be that really have nothing to do with what a man is or isn't. And so, yeah, so I just really encourage brothers just to kind of open up, have real conversations, you know, with your kids, like real conversations, man, not freezing up the second it gets uncomfortable and be like oh that's women's issues or talking oh about yeah that. i mean like understanding that literally man you're you're one accident away from potentially being a single parent raising girls right mm-hmm. or oh wow you're gonna have to do it at some point because you know like i mean knock on wood hopefully that doesn't happen but it can and so mm-hmm. you need to know you know like one of the challenges for myself is i gotta learn how to do hair <laughs> right like, <laughs> yeah like, do a ponytail was so hard like <laughs> you know but apparently uh-huh. it is you know yeah so it's a lot i mean i, I wish there was some uh, a simpler answer but i really just i think the major part is like really checking your own biases first mm-hmm. right yeah, that's what i hear checking your own biases and empowering them to know that they are capable of anything mm-hmm. yeah absolutely absolutely 
All right. Well, I appreciate you coming. Latricia does as well. Will you tell our listeners how they can get in contact with you? Sure, sure. My website is IamSubstantial.com. My company's website, Substantial Art and Music, is uh, SubArtAndMusic.com. Uh, social media is just I am substantial at Twitter. And then everything else uh, is substantial music on IG, Facebook, YouTube. Awesome. Well, this has been great. I have really enjoyed having this conversation. Like Phyllis said, we both have. And we thank you so much. I appreciate that. Thank you. All right, Latricia, we had a wonderful conversation with substantial. What would be your principal challenge for today? Principal challenge. Live them out. Our principal challenge for today is to listen to substantial song entitled Umoja and follow his call to action. Invest in one another and our people shall profit. Let's start it. All right. MC Latricia, thank you. And that brings us to spread the good news. Open your hearts, ears, and minds for our next section. Not rumors, not rubbish. Living the principles, we spread the good news. Since we've been talking about music, I will first like to report Grandmaster Flash recently became the first DJ and rapper to win Sweden's Polar Prize, which is described as the Nobel Prize for Peace. He is the pioneer of rap music, and he's known for the song, Don't Push Me, Cause I'm Close to the Edge. So let's give it up for Grandmaster Flash. Our second person isn't a rapper, but they are a singer. Holly Bailey will be playing Ariel in the live-action remake of The Little Mermaid. She's a protege of Beyonce and was discovered on YouTube. She has a beautiful voice and we look forward to her performance. The third is related to music and it's more than just about music. It's what music brings us together. The 25th Essence Festival not only focused on music, but it also focused on finances, beauty, politics, and investing into the youth. It was headlined by None other than our former first lady, Michelle Obama. Music is a powerful tool to spread the good news. All right, Latricia, we've had an excellent recording. Can you end us off with a soul snack? Our soul snack comes from a Bantu proverb, and it says, what makes the drum pleasing is the song. That's our show for today. Until next time, expand your minds and impact your communities. Thanks for listening to Living the Principles podcast. Be sure to visit us at livingtheprinciples365.com to access the show and join in on the conversations.